Hello, my name is Michael Sanders and you're listening to the Camera Channel Podcast. It's fair to say that LED lighting has dramatically changed our industry, with units ranging from the tiny battery-powered lights you can put anywhere to Cineo's recently launched Reflex R15 that punches out 125,000 lumens yet only draws 1,500 watts AC. But there are downsides to this versatility and low power consumption, as the colour rendering of some LED units leaves a lot to be desired. A team, led by cinematographer Jeff Boyle, have just conducted a wide-ranging series of tests with a host of LED lights and cameras. The tests, along with a plethora of data, such as meter readings, have been posted online and we've posted a link to them on our website. Jeff joined me via Skype from his home in the Netherlands to discuss the tests. But I couldn't have him on without first asking him about CML, the cinematographer's mailing list, which is one of the best discussion forums dedicated to cinematography anywhere online. Well, first of all, for those that don't know, what is CML? Uh, CML started as a discussion group amongst a very small group of people uh, back in 96. Um and has grown and grown into a reference website, a discussion system, and a place that independently and viciously tests all equipment. And it's also a place where people can exchange information, isn't it? And that's... that's... It's very much that. And that's what it was set up for. Back in 96, um, there were systems called the CompuServe Internet... Information, it was KISS, CIS, and there was all CompuServe and AOL. And there were groups on that. And there was also Usenet. And I was on all of those. And I saw the same people having conversations, but there were different conversations. on. And I thought, this is crazy. We're going to three places. I'm going to set up a mailing list. And I took the 60 most interesting people from the other systems and just told them you are now members of the cinematography mailing list. And in the process, killed the other three because it came a central point because it was aimed at professionals. It was aimed at the guys who were spending half the year in hotel rooms on commercials, high-end music videos, high-end TV series and features, bored out their brains and having similar problems. And it was so we could talk to each other and exchange information, help each other, and so on. And it grew and grew and grew. And it's become this amazing hub for conversations, mostly down to the fact that you've got some incredibly well-known players in the industry who are there, who give their time and their knowledge quite happily. And there are so many people there that are... I mean, I got an award back in 2001 from the Science Society of Motion Picture and Television Engineers for CML. And in the acceptance speech, I said, it's not me, it's the members. The members are what make CML. I facilitate it, but they're the ones who make it work. And it's that free exchange of knowledge that is staggering. And also the policing, the list mums who make sure that people stay on topic and the basic rule is you can only talk about your own experience. Unlike the rest of the net, where it's, I heard that someone said that, and my mate said, and I heard somewhere that. 
that is totally not allowed on CML. And yeah, at times you feel like the rules are a little bit tight, but it's what makes CML the resource it is. It's quite an interesting balancing act. And we discuss it between the list mums as a, a group just for us um, about how hard we moderate. And sometimes you have to back off and let people get out of order because otherwise you'll kill it. And you have, it's a fine line you walk between letting crap in and moderating it too hard. But it's obviously working because it attracts talent from across the industry and some very, very well-known talent. There are very few of us who have access to the members list, and that's a deliberate policy. Yeah. We'll never share it, never sell it. It's private. Yeah. Occasionally I'll just have a scroll down at random. There's nearly 13,000 people there now. Um and you go, bloody hell, what's he doing on there? <laughs> and some of the private emails I get from people, you think, bloody hell, they're reading it? <gasps> well, I remember years ago doing a corporate drama and we needed to do a particular shot similar to the George Clooney movie, Out of Sight, where the rain is falling on someone's face. And I posted a message on CML and about half an hour later, I got an email with a phone number of the gaffer on it saying, yeah, give him a call. He'll talk to you. It's remarkable. And I'm just, I am staggered every time some of the stuff I see coming in. The knowledge that's there and the depth of knowledge is just staggering. And it's the fact that it's quite, I mean, it's quite interesting because it is a very competitive industry in a lot of ways. Yet people are still willing to share information that in a lot of cases has been built up over a lifetime. I got grief years ago from Terence Donovan for letting assistants make notes about how I was lighting something. Uh, because coming from a stills background, as I do, nobody helped mm. anyone. It was really dog-eat-dog. Dog. Mm. And Terry couldn't understand why I was willing to let that happen. And he actually ripped the pages out of a notebook. And I said, you know, the whole thing is that I'm lighting this like this now because of what I've done in the past. She can copy this, but if I come in this situation again, yeah. I won't light it like this because I've learned from this and I'll do it differently. And so I can tell you how I did a job. It's not going to help you because all you're going to do is mimic that job. You need to learn and it takes time and experience. And I'm very happy to share some of that knowledge because you're not going to do it like that again. And actually, that sort of neatly leads us on to the lighting test because they are about the sharing of knowledge and the pooling of information. So let's start at the beginning. What led you to do these extremely comprehensive tests? Okay, the reason these tests and previous ones grew up is I did a film oh, five years ago called Bait. Um, lowest budget film, shot in Yorkshire, great fun to shoot. And I had got on loan a one foot square LED panel that was tunable in colour and run off batteries. You'd stick a camera battery on it. And it was amazing because I was shooting in a lot of real locations 
where I'd rig 2.5 HMIs and gantries and so on, or on walkways around a, an indoor market. But you needed just to stick a kicker to get the, the lead actress's hair. And you could say to your gaffer, there. And he could just go clunk. And it was there. No cables to run. And it was like, a mm, little bit warmer. Just take it down a touch, up a touch. Yeah, there. Brilliant. Fell in love with it. Used it all the time. Looked fine to the eye. It looked fine on video assist. When we came to grade it at 4K, all the backlight gave her hair a green tint. And I spent two days going through doing secondary corrections, just taking out the green tint in her hair. At which point, of course, I went, LEDs, never going to work with them again. And then started to find out more about LEDs, testing lots of them for my own use. And I found that remote phosphors worked, full stop. But they're fairly limiting because you can only get them from BB&S and uh, Cineo. Harry kind of offered it at one point, but never really delivered. So you have to use the available LEDs. Now, the problem is that you've got LED lights that have spikes. They're not continuous spectrum. So they have spikes in different parts of the spectrum. You have single sensor cameras, Bayer pattern sensor, which are, because of the nature of them, are not continuous spectrum. They have dips and spikes as well. And if the spikes coincide, you have a major problem. If you can line the spikes up with the dips, that's really cool. So I tested the best-selling LED against tungsten and showed it at IBC on the big screen anonymously. I didn't say what camera. We used different cameras, I think seven of them, and we switched between tungsten LED without me saying which was which and which was which camera. And someone in the audience said, well, how can we tell? I said, dead simple. If it looks like she's got liver cancer, that's the LED. <laughs> and it was a fact. And of course, as DPs, what we're really interested in is skin tone. And that's the problem. The one area that LEDs are deficient in is the low end of the red spectrum. Well, that has been the case. What's really interesting in this test has been that a good half of the lights now actually deliver a decent skin tone. Am I ever going to say which ones I think do? No. I've published the results. You can look at them and you can decide which you like and which you don't. What I found interesting was the first time I published the ones that are available now, I didn't white balance. I matched them on luminance only because I had this theory that whilst LEDs could be graded to look good, you had to stick to one manufacturer because they didn't play well together. And oh boy, is that the case. Some of them play together, some of them don't. Most of them don't. And that's something you really need to check. And you can check it on CML um, before you shoot. We've published all the C800 readings, or we've used about seven different color temperature meters or color spectrometers. And we published all those results. And you can see why some lights don't work. Because there's just no response in the areas you need them. Um, but having said that, they are getting better and better and better. 
And what I'm finding interesting is at the moment, I'm in the middle, and it's driving me crazy, of doing neutral grey balances. So I'm colour balancing all of them to a neutral grey on the grey scale to see how the colour responses change. Not any bias from overall colour shift, but how the colorimetry shifts. And it's much bigger than I thought it was going to be. And it's quite frightening how some lights in one color temperature will respond and give you a decent green where you switch them to another and green basically vanishes. And of course, something else that people are only discovering quite recently is that certain color meters don't read LEDs properly. Oh yeah. Look at the test results we published. My old Minolta colour meters, colour meter two. The results of that are just, they're mad. They bear no relation to what the light's putting out. So what's the solution? Do we all go out and buy a Siconic C800? Horrifyingly, not horrifyingly actually, it's a great meter and the answer is yes. And you need to look at SSI, Spectral Similarity Index. TLCI works great for three sensor cameras. But it doesn't work with Bayer sensor cameras. And you look at the SSI and it's terrifying how bad or how far away from a black body radiator they are. From a reference 5600 or a reference 3200. And one of the things it's possible to do in the C800 is to load a light as your reference light. And it will then give you the SSI in relation to that light. So for matching, you really need that. I've been trying to persuade the Academy that they should actually start publishing reference SSIs that aren't black body radiators, but are camera responses. So this is the spectral sensitivity index of an Alexa, of a C500, of a Monstro. And how does your light compare to this? It's probably the best safety blanket there is at the moment. Yeah. And yeah, it's expensive, but how much is your career worth? Exactly. And if you're an iPhone user, then get Adam Wilt app. It's really shockingly good for the amount of money that thing costs. It is. I've got it, and I use it all the time, daily. Cinemeter and PCAM are probably the apps I use more on my phone than almost anything else other than possibly WhatsApp. But it's interesting, it comes back to what we're talking about, about standards and having something, a reference point that you can rely on. What we did in the tests was we took tungsten and we colour corrected them to match 3200 perfectly. We then took much more tungsten and colour corrected it to daylight, to 5600, with no green magenta shift. And that's what we compare the lights to. Not theoretically correct lights, but correct lights. And how do they compare to an absolute standard? And the answer is, it varies from light to light. Some of them now are getting bloody close. And just today, as I've been looking at matching stuff, it is amazing how close some are getting and how easy some are to match. Of course, you can't match multiple different lights in a scene. So one thing that's worth talking about is... ASIS and what its role is in all of this. ASIS is to take the camera manufacturer's variations out of it. Every time you work outside of ASIS, you're looking at 
what LUT do I use? How do I output it? What gamma do I use? What color space do I use? ACES has standardized all of that. There are IDTs, input transforms, for nearly every camera. There are output transforms for everything. So I could just go into ACES, use that as my working space. ACES 1.1 and CCT are the actual exact settings. I would use a reference IDT from them. They work with the manufacturers on those IDTs. They are the correct reference. When it came to grading, I would set the ODT to 709, and I would use the Kodak grayscale, and I would grayscale correct luminance values. So that grayscale went to 122 in an 8-bit scale, 488 in a 10-bit scale. That is the Kodak reference level. When we came to do the renders, I changed the output transform to Rec 2020, ST2084, PQ1000, P3, D65, which is the HDR reference setting. And we rendered out in that. We uploaded to Vimeo in that format, in UHD, and they then converted down where it was needed. But anyone can download that UHD HDR master. The cameras were all set up using the Netflix PDFs, which are available from Netflix online. So we tried as much as possible to standardize everything and to publish every standard we'd work to. So anyone who wants to argue with us can use those standards and see if they get anything different. <laughs> but these tests are quite revealing, aren't they? I know quite a lot of DPs are... Um, a bit blasé, shall we say, about LEDs and just use them willy-nilly. But when you look at these results, you can't help to be quite alarmed at just how bad some LED lights actually are. It's true. You know, lights you think should be accurate because of who they come from are probably the worst you can get. Yeah. As long as yeah. you stay out of the real weird market. Um there are really encouraging signs. I'm trying not to promote any particular manufacturers, I'm trying, but I can't help it. BBNS and Cineo have been doing LEDs for a long time now and get it right. Well, you're speaking to a Maverick owner who's had two Mavericks for about um, four or five years now at least, and they are, yeah, they're the benchmark for me. Yeah, absolutely. They have been mine. But you look at what Kinoflow is doing. I mean, Frida's been doing this for a long, long time. And I wanted all the manufacturers to match their cameras. <laughs> Big chance of that. Um, so Frida took the approach of, I'm going to alter the settings of my lights to optimize them for individual cameras. So you can now take the freestyle, which are the ones we tested, and there's an overall setting, standard setting, there's an Alexa, there's a Vericam, there's a Panavision, which is actually a red, and there's a Sony. And you switch the light to those, and the light then becomes optimised for those cameras. Does it work? Yeah, it does. The lights can also be switched to what colour space you're working in. 
I did talk to Frida about that because I thought that was a, a dodgy thing to do because if you're delivering in 709 now, you may at a later time want to deliver in P3 or 2020. And if you've limited your lights to 709, you're screwed. There's nothing left for you to work with. So my approach has always been to set the lights to 2020, which is what we did for the tests. Um, and we also set the cameras for the widest colour gamut they could handle. So do you think we're going to see more manufacturers doing what Kinoflow have done and put in settings for different cameras? Uh, I would rather they just all learn to match tungsten. Um, <laughs> it would make everyone's life so much easier, wouldn't it? It would. Um, because at least if all your lights match, then camera variations can be removed relatively easily. The problem we have now is everything varies. There are no standards, which is why we go back to Super 35, Aces, Tungsten. Um, to go back to Aces, uh, I've done a lot of workshops on Aces now, and I'm going to do a very short version of the Aces workshop. When I started, I shot and film. There was a reference. It was theoretically 25 across in printer lights, it varied from lab to lab, but if you had your stuff printed at the reference lights, if it was too bright or too dark or the wrong color, it was your fault because it was a reference. When we came to scan the neg onto telecine, you had Kodak telecine alignment film. And if you lined up your telecine to TAF and you didn't touch it and put your neg on, it was the equivalent to printing at 25 across. So if it was too bright, too dark, blah, 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 blah. You had a reference. When we went fully digital, basically you were fucked because there was your lookup table. Oh, we use a standard 709 lookup table for that camera. And I show in the workshops I do 12 different standard Alexa 709 lookup tables that I've collected from different post houses. They're all standard. In other words, nothing is standard. And ACES takes that variation away. If you take ACES and you use the image transform for the camera and the output transform for whatever you're going to look at it on, what you're looking at is what you shot. If it's too bright, too dark, or the wrong colour, it's your fault. I love it. Yeah. Great. It's what the industry has been crying out for. Well, my argument and the, the, the thing that got me involved with the Academy and Aces was they were selling it, not selling it, promoting it to high-end movies. And they were talking about the colour science and so on. I was interested in low-budget stuff, which didn't have money to spend time grading. And you wanted to have a reliable system to know that what you were looking at was what you'd shot. And my whole thing of the presentation I do now is based on Homer Simpson in the episode where he's in hospital and he's got an electrically operated bed. <laughs> and he's going, bed goes up, bed goes down. Bed goes up, bed goes down. And I just changed the output transform going HDR, SDR, HDR, <laughs> SDR, what's your fucking problem? <gasps> and we need to cover ourselves as cameramen 
for what it's going to be used for in the future. And the more we can encourage producers to work in ACES, the more we're safe. And the more we can encourage them to use it all the way through, as long as we can monitor it properly on set, the more control we have. It goes back to what I screamed at DIT years ago. And he took it incredibly well and we're good friends and we got over it very quickly. But we're in the middle of a 12-week, 14-week studio shoot and it was a little intense. He went, I think your blacks are a bit low, Jeff. It's getting a bit noisy. And I just, fuck off, they're my pictures. <laughs> and I did apologise to him later in the day, bought him a drink. But that is my attitude. They're my, yes, I make them for the director. And yes, I make them for the lead actress. But they're my pictures. I know exactly what you mean. It's actually something we've talked about quite a bit before. I've always thought the idea of shooting log, especially in the TV world where the DP is invariably not involved in the post-production process, and the editors are really pushed for time and quite often will just put a Rec 709 LUT over the top, is a very strange concept because you are invariably handing over control of your pictures to somebody else. Yeah. And I think what's really interesting is on the Sony FX9, you've got S-Cinetone, which burns in a really nice look and gives you back control of what your pictures will eventually look like. If you don't have control of post, or at least some input into it, that's the only way to go. Having said that, I shot a commercial years ago that was graded by Gary Zabo when he was at Framestore. I had a client who said they wanted the commercial to be grainy, contrasty, and very blue. And I said, well, you, you wanted to look a bit like Flashdance. It, it was for sure, actually. Dancer in a warehouse, shafts of light coming through. And I said, well, I can shoot it on 16mm reversal, and I can shoot tungsten in daylight. That'll give you grain, contrast, and blue. And they went, yeah, that's what we want. So we did. And the rushes were grainy, contrasty, and blue. They're exactly what they'd asked for. I then went on holiday for a couple of weeks, and I came back and turned the telly on, and the first commercial I saw was the one I'd shot, which was neutral colour, very little grain, and kind of normal contrast. <laughs> and I immediately phoned Gary and went, what the fuck did you do? And he said, well, they changed their mind. And he said, it was a bit difficult, but I made it. And that was the point where I went, there is nothing I can do that they cannot pull back. So what I've got to do is control the lighting to get the look and the contrast I want through the lighting, to control the look through the lenses I use yeah. and the filters that I still use on camera. Because you can really, they can't reproduce a polarizer and you can make life difficult for them with grads and diffusion filters. So I get it as close as I can that way. And then I talk to colorists. I don't have, colorists are not your enemy. They are your best friends. That's a really good point and a really good note to end it on. Um, but before I let you go, I want to throw at you a quick fire question, 
which is what is your favourite on-set gadget? Whoa. My favourite on-set gadget? This is your Desert Island Disc moment. You're allowed to say one thing. Yeah, it is. Um, okay. It's probably my Minolta 6 meter, combination spot and incident meter. If we're coming down to one thing, if we're coming down to two things, my Odyssey, Convergent Design Odyssey, because it's a P3 display, I've got it loaded with all the lookup tables I use, and I don't care what the monitors on the floor look like. That's my reference. That's the one I carry on every shoot with me, on every test. It's so important to have something that you know you can rely on, isn't it? Absolutely all the time. Yeah. It used to be meter only, and the meter changed over the years, and now it's meter and monitor. Yeah. Well, the tools you've got on monitors are, you know, they just blow you away, don't they? I mean, it's, there is no excuse for getting it wrong if you've got false colour or waveform. Ah, the trouble is, what are people looking at? Are they setting their grayscale on a log image? Are they setting the grayscale on a 709 image? Are they setting the grayscale on a lutted image? And I've seen people set the grayscale on a log image to where it should be on a 709 image, in which case you are mammothly overexposed and vice versa. So scary. And that's where we leave our conversation with Jeff. As you can hear, we did stray a little bit off topic, but I hope you found it as interesting as I did. My thanks to Jeff, who was unbelievably generous with his time. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please let us know. You can contact us on Twitter at The Camera Channel Podcast or mjsanders.co.uk slash podcasts. My name is Michael Sanders. Thank you for listening.